As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. The Phil Hayes Show is brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. You can get in touch with the show Twitter account at The Phil Hayes Show. My name's Dan Moylan. Hello. Uh, joined today by my colleague from the Square Ball, Michael Normanson. Hello. Pleased to say Phil is on the final stretch of his recovery from the surgery he had at the end of April. All being well, he should be back on the show in a few weeks' time. Uh, before Phil was off, we recorded a top 10 signings feature that's running every week for 10 weeks, so you will still hear his voice on the show. This week, we bring you Phil's number five. Uh, in Phil's absence, we're having guests in from the world of Leeds United. This week, catching up with one of the true greats in the form of Eddie Gray. Welcome to the show, sir. Pleasure. You can sign up now for The Athletic and enjoy all the unparalleled coverage of the Euros. Just a pound a month for six months at the minute. Sign up and pay just six quid between now and the end of the year for access to the very best sports writing anywhere, including excellent coverage of Leeds United. Head to theathletic.com forward slash Leeds pod to sign up. First things first then, Eddie. Fixtures have just been released. I wonder you, you've been around for for a few seasons do you still find yourself when the fixtures come out looking for a particular fixture do you still do that or are they all much the same to you these days no i think it's quite interesting to look at the fixtures i mean obviously the fixture that come out first the legion united manchester united game it's a huge fixture it means a lot to Leeds united fans i like to look at the fixtures and who you're playing around you know the christmas period when you're playing the new sides that have come up like brentford no a happy hunting ground for us you know so you want to know when you're playing them no, it's very interesting to look at the fixtures, I think. And anything in that fixture list to worry about? Um, December's been picked out by quite a few people as a little bit hairy, but it was the uh, in the second half of the season anyway. It was the, the the point in the season last year when we got most points. We seemed to do best. When you look at the fixtures, you're around about the Christmas time. You're playing a lot of the top clubs, clubs that look top teams. And I've not got the Champions League games around about then, you know. So that'll be a difficult time, I think. But I don't think our, our side... Getting to any game, fearing any side, it's, it's in the league. I think they approach every game as if they can win it, and rightly so, because they've been playing tremendous. I mean, you look at it, as you said, last season, second half of the season, I thought we were terrific. Once we got to grips with the Premier League, I thought we played well. We could match most sides in the league, and uh, you know what they did last season, I think they can be very proud of. Do you think that's the starting point for next season, then, where we left off, essentially? Is mid-table as low as you're looking, <laughs> do you think? The way they played last season, you're looking at the top half of the table. And I don't see any reason why they shouldn't. They've got a lot of players that 
you know, have come into their own. You know, you look at Calvin playing for his country now. He's a main man. You look at you know, Rafinho and how he played and Rodrigo at the end of the season starting to score goals. So I think they should get into the season with a lot of confidence. And I think they will. I mean, I think the way Marcelo sets his team up, you know, he sets them up to win every game. I don't think they get into any game with a negative attitude at all. I think they get into every game thinking they can win it regardless of who they're playing. That's a good kickoff start, that. If you get into games thinking that, yeah, we're going to win this game. And that's the belief that he's putting into the players. I mean, you've been a coach and a manager, so much experience. What do you think happened last season to make them settle into the Premier League, if you like, and, and evolve in the way that they did? I don't think it was so much settling into the Premier League. I think it was how they performed in the Championship. I mean, I think they learned big time. You know, we get beaten the playoffs when they did in the Championship. And I think when they played in the Championship, they were getting results. They thought they could compete against MD. So they're going into a new season, regardless of who they're playing, whether it be in the Championship or the Premier League, thinking they can win every game they play. And it's a great feeling to have that as a footballer. Uh, I think they trust each other. They trust, obviously, Marcelo, the way he approaches a game, the way he sets them up to play. So I think overall, they've got great confidence in each other. And even before the Premier League started, I got the feeling that they would do well. I didn't think they would struggle at all. Mm. And, I don't, and I don't think they did struggle. You get a couple of results earlier, were a bit disappointing. I wouldn't say, you know, they thought, well, we can compete here. I mean, even when we were getting results that didn't go for us early on, a, a couple of results, you know, still creating chances themselves and still were competing in games. So I think that gave them the confidence to kick on as well. How, how do you make footballers believe in themselves? Because we're all human. It's only one thing that does that. Goals. Getting results. Yeah. I mean, football's all about, people talk about possession of the ball. You know, to me, possession of the ball doesn't mean anything. I, you can get the, I could get and play now and not give the ball away. Passes, you know, I can get and pass it 10 yards, but I wouldn't be doing anything. I wouldn't be hurting the opposition. I wouldn't be winning the ball back. So, you know, it's all about many goals you concede, many goals you score. At the end of the day, that's what football's all about. It's I mean, sim- I, I, it's a simple game. I, well, <laughs> listen, good players make it look simple. You know, I played in a great side. But we didn't play great every week. Sometimes we would go out and we'd be struggling. But you knew if you didn't concede any goals, you had somebody on your side like Alan Clark and Mick Jones, who Peter Lorimer was going to stick the ball in the back of the net. You come off, you win, win, nothing, you get into the next game. I think if you're playing the side that's getting results, that's where the confidence comes from. Winning games, mm-hmm. you know, however you win them actually. Because you look back and you, even last season, you look at some results and the players will look at some of the games they play and think, oh, we never played well that game, but we win the game. So it doesn't make any difference. I think that's something maybe we need to get a bit more used to in the Premier League because in the Championship we basically had two seasons of being the best team in every single game. Yeah, and then we came into the league. Obviously, there was some there were some fairly heavy defeats in there, but then there were games like when we beat Burnley. But afterwards, everyone was kind of stressed by it because they they'd had so much of the ball and it felt like we weren't on top. But that's just the way it goes sometimes. Yeah, I mean you're going to get that in the Premier League. You know, same with the Southampton game. First twenty minutes of the game, you're thinking you're going to struggle. But I think the team have got that belief. Regardless of how the opposition are playing, we can always step up to the mark and turn things around. And as you mentioned, a couple of games at the end of the season, we didn't start particularly well. We end up winning the games. I think that's just, you know, the confidence that runs through the side. I think they pick each other up. Somebody's had a bad time. They'll work hard to help them get out of that. So all in all, I think it's down to how they perform, how they work in the training ground. And I think, obviously, their training's hard. They've got a great belief in their physical fitness as well. 
which is a big thing. Mm -hmm. In any sport, you've got to physically fit. You know, regardless of how much ability you've got, it's like anything. If you can't run, you can't play. Simple that. That's always been a fact in the game. I find it interesting how Bielsa's given them, they almost seem bulletproof, like total self-belief, total belief in the system. How's he done that then, in, in your opinion? Well, obviously, he's a great coach. I think he's got great self-belief. I don't think he listens to many people. I think he's got a great belief in how he thinks the game should be played. And I think that transmits to the players. And if you've got a coach like that, who's got great self-belief in the way he approaches the game, you take that on. It just needs a little bit of success. Mm -hmm. You know, like getting out of the Championship, getting into the Premier League. I mean, you've got to remember, you know, we actually look at some of the players, say three or four seasons ago, a lot of the players looked at it was as if it was going to be tough for them to play at the top end of the Championship. But now, those same players have got a belief in themselves and playing as well as any Premier League players. They've got a great belief to play in the Premier League. And that's got to be down to how they work in the training ground, the work ethic they've got, the confidence they have in themselves, the confidence they have in the coach and their teammates. I find it fascinating that Bielsa doesn't really have any relationships with the players. He doesn't really deal with them on a one-to-one on -one basis, does he? Does he? he just tells them to do more, run more, move more. Whereas, I mean, I, I look back at the example, and is, is this true, this story that about how you used to motivate Mark Viduka when he was playing for Leeds and he needed knocking down a little bit and being told that he couldn't do something to make him go out there and almost be angry on the pitch. When you talk about Viduka, you're, somebody, you're talking about somebody, though, that could play on any side in the world. Viduka was that good. They had that much talent. At times, Mark was, was a bit laid back. So you would maybe say things to him, you know, just to get him going a bit. I remember playing the Arsenal and saying, Martin Keown, and, you know, he's going to knock you all over the shop with you, you know. And his eyes lit up. Is that right? Oh, we'll see then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so... And that day we know, and he was brilliant, you know. But he, Mark was a, a, a top-class player. What you've got to remember about Mark Viduka is every, everywhere he played, he was top goal scorer. The Greb, Celtic, Leeds United, Middlesbrough. He scored a lot of goals. He, he was a tremendous centre-forward. Looking at where Leeds United are at the minute, we've seen the announcement this week about the, the Park Life scheme is going to move from Fullerton Park over to the, to the Matthew Murray site, and uh, that's to allow Ellen Road to be built up to, to 55,000. It feels like there's a lot of momentum. It feels like an oil tanker does Leeds United. Do you agree with that? It needs momentum, does Leeds United. But when it gets going, it's unstoppable. Well, I think the thing about it is, is you know, if these restrictions are lifted, you never know when that's going to happen. You'll not be able to get a ticket at Ellen Road. It's a big city, Leeds, you know, and there's only one football club in the city. So obviously, there's going to be great demand if the team are successful to get into the ground. Especially now, you know, you've got to keep the momentum going. If you want to stay in the Premier League, if you want to build with the so-called big boys in the, in the league, and we've got that capacity to do that, it's within the realms of possibility that we could be in the top four or five next season because the passion's there. I think it will help us a lot if it's a full stadium every week. Uh, I don't think the opposition like to come to Ellen Road. They know it's going to be a hot, hostile atmosphere. Uh, got, the fans are going to get right behind the team. Obviously, the club are pushing on. You've got to give the owner, you know, Andrea and, and Angus Kinnear credit for that as well as Marcella. Because to have the foresight to go and get somebody for the Argentina in the first place. I mean, everybody talks about Marcella now as if he's godlike, you know, in footballing terms. But many people had heard of him before he came here. Mm. No, everybody would have heard of him. Maybe in passing. But they wouldn't know exactly what he could do. And to get go and get him 
and then to persuade him to stay and persuade him this. I think he's bought into the city of Leeds as well, though, Marcelo. I think he likes the passion around the football club. You've got to give credit at the top for the, the owner and the chief exec and obviously the, the head coach and Victor Orta as well. And Victor's got players to come into the club that so far they've, well, I would say exceeded expectations in a way. You know, they've not been here a long time, especially think Rafinho when he come in and at first, you know, when you first seen him, you knew he had talent, great ability on the ball. But when you look at his work right now, it's been up about three or four levels. That's probably all down to the, the coaching, the encouragement he gets on a training field and the hard work he put in. But what do you make of him as a winger? Um, it was your profession for a, for a long time. Obviously, the game's changed well, a lot. Funny enough, I don't really see him as a winger. I see him as somebody drifts. He plays out wide, but he can come in the middle of the park. He gets into good areas. I think he's his most dangerous when he's in and around the 18-yard box because he's a good striker at a ball. He can make a half-yard for himself. I never considered myself I was a winger in my life. I was never a winger. I'd never played left wing in my life till I came to Leeds. That was foreign to me. I was a midfield player. I played wing half, the old wing half, you know, number six for the Scottish schoolboys. And when I played, made my debut for the club, I played midfield when I was 17. The only reason I played outside left is that Don was trying to make the side up what he thought could go on and be successful. And he had Billy, obviously Billy Bremner and Johnny Giles, who just bought for Manchester United. When I came in 63 to join the club when I was 15, Johnny came to the club for Manchester United. And funny enough, when Johnny played in the cup five for Manchester United, he played outside right as well. People forget that. But Johnny was a midfield player. I was a frustrated midfield player <laughs> all my career. Donji says, would you mind having a go play outside left? Because it'd be easy for you, because you can run, you can get by people. I says, yeah. So that's why people think I was a winger, but I was a frustrated midfield <laughs> I player. I think you went all right. Career. All yeah. in all, you'd have to say you did all right out there. <laughs> yeah, but only because I could play there. You know, I mean, but if you can play, you know, you could play most positions. I mean, I ended up my career playing left back, which I found easy. I've played central defender at the club as well. I've played sweeper. Only because I think when I was growing up, I was never, ever a winger. The funny thing is, even if you look back to a few of the earlier games I played when I was younger, if I didn't play midfield, I'm talking about central midfield, I played up front. The winger thing was just Don's idea. It, it was, the whole thing was a lie. <laughs> no, no, it was just, it was just Don's <laughs> idea, you know. I just came in one day when yeah. I was about 19, 18, 19, and says, would you mind having a go to play outside left? Because we had Albert Johansson. And Albert was terrific. You know, Albert was a great winger and a big help to get Leeds United out of the old second division into the first division with the help of, obviously, Bobby Collins. You know, Bobby could play with Albert and knew Albert's strengths. But I don't think Don... I think Albert found it hard to be in the limelight. And obviously, when the club came out of the second division uh, and went into the big league and playing in the big stage... I think Albert found it a little bit harder to cope. It was a sad story at the end for Albert. Everybody knows that. And I, that's why I think Don asked me to play outside left. He had a look at it and he thought, no. I mean, I think it's the same way with Peter, you know. Peter never played right wing in his life either. Peter was an inside forward playing with Scottish schoolboys. Peter was a year older than me. And I remember watching him against, you know, England schoolboys at Ibrox and basically played up front. And played up front with a centre forward when they played two up. And Don asked Peter to play outside right as well because 
he could play there as well because he, he had knowledge of how to play the game. So I think it was just done looking at the players he had at the football club at that particular time and thinking how can I mould these players into, like Marcella, how can I mould them into being a, a group, a team? So, yeah, they just, you know, the outside left thing. And, and I, I think the same a little bit like Rafinho. I think he looks to, to me as if he's better playing when he's got a free hand. He can drift anywhere. And if you actually look at the games he played and where he pops up, I think you can see that. Although, obviously, if he plays on the right side, he's good at coming inside onto his left foot and he's a big threat. But he's, he's most dangerous, I think, in between their lines and 18-yard box. You know, if you go right down the middle of the park when he's attacking people, I mean, obviously, he can get down the outside because he's got the talent to get by people and get to the dead ball line. I think he does his best work when he's he's drifting in the middle of the park and causing central defenders problems. Just returning to Ellen Road, will you be sorry to see the old parts of it go? Because it's strange, isn't it, how like the West Stand has been there since you were playing and then you've seen it through as a, as a manager and a coach? And- no, I'll not, see, I'll not be sorry to see it go because I think it needs up doing. I mean, everything's got to move on in life. He mentioned earlier, football's changed, you know, in many aspects. How players, you know, train now, how they live. You know, you only need to look at the European Championships that are on now. And the aerial view, they show you some of the stadiums, you know, the state of the art now. And in some of the stadiums in this country, you know, you, you look at them, you think, Ellen Road looks tired. It could do a upgrading to match the exploits of the side. And obviously... The city as well, you know, Leeds is the modern city and I think they need, you know, modern stadium to go with. Places like the old West Stand, they always retain great memories and they'll always be there in the back of the mind. But I think the stadium needs an upgrade now. All of it for facilities for fans as well, you know, and that's important in football now. You know yourself, there's a lot of hospitality in football now. I think the majority of the fans like that. Somewhere comfortable to go. Whether it's in, you know, I, I know everybody's in like to get into a hospitality suite or anything like that, but just to have good facilities in and around the stands, it makes it terrific for people, I think. I mean, if, if you walk into some of the stadiums, like you look at the Man City Stadium, you, you know, you, you look at some, the, you know, some of the stadiums in the country, the Tottenham Hotspur New Stadium is just, I don't know if you've ever been in that. It's, it's just unbelievable. So I think things move on in football and, but the one thing about football to do all that, you've got to maintain a success rate. Uh, and that's what, the, first and foremost, the club have got to keep going, keep going, progress on the field. Because what happens on the field mirrors itself off the field as well. Mm. If you're successful, you can push forward and do things. It's the same way attracting players to the football club. Now, I don't think our club would have done ourselves any harm last season in attracting players to the football club because they have watched us and people say up and down the country. Favourite team we watch for by more inside is Leeds United because of the way we play the game. So that all helps as well. I mean, we, uh, we've we got mixed feelings about it, haven't we? I think we, we're desperate not to lose our soul, I think. And maybe we cling on to things like the West Stand because we like the tired, shabby thing, but we also fully accept that it needs to go. Do you think, Eddie, that at different times during our history that we've been a little, we've clung on to the past too much and it's maybe weighed us down a little bit? Uh, it's difficult to say. If you talk about the most successful clubs in the world, you know, and in this country, they always keep in touch with the past as well. And the great Real Madrid size, never forget the size of the 50s, early 60s, that won the European Cup. 
five seasons in a row. I mean, I remember going to Hamden Park, 1960, when I was a kid, to watch a great Real Madrid side play Entry Frankfurt and watch Puskas and Di Stefano. You know, you never forget these things in the history of the football club. But I think things have got to move on as they do in all walks of life. I think you can always reminisce and look back in history of football clubs with great memories. And I don't think that'll ever get away. I mean, there'll be people sitting here in 30 years' time talking about Marcelo Bielsa and the team. <laughs> Although that'll have gone. You don't forget it, but you've got to move on in life. People still talk about Don Revy's side, Howard Wilkinson's great team, Strachan, Batty, McAllister and Speed, and rightly so. But hopefully, another three or four seasons, people will be talking about the present players. But to do that and to have that, we've got to win things or be competing for things at a high level, which isn't easy in today's game, you know. Years ago, before the Premier League started and the game was more a 11 playing field, any sides could really come up and challenge the big boys, you know, like if they had good enough players. Because it was easier to keep the players in those days, you know. There wasn't as many agents around. And, I mean, all the time I was at Leeds, you never really thought about leaving a club. I mean, all the players I played with, they were all at the club for 10, 12 years. And that doesn't really happen now, unless you're really successful. But then if you're really successful, somebody else will come in and make an offer for players like the big clubs in the continent. You look how players move around now. So that's, that's why it's important for our, our club to stay and keep going forward and, and be successful to keep your best players. I mean, there's, there's talk already, isn't there? We'll be hold on to Rafinho. But if you're successful, then you can. If you're not successful, then you're going to lose them now. Nowadays, especially with agents and players moving on. I mean, contracts now don't really mean a lot. You know, you can sign a five-year contract. But what does it mean? This means the club are going to get a bigger fee for the player when he moves on. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Joining us now on the Phil Hayes Show, Graham Hyde, Vice Chair of Leeds United Supporters Trust. Thanks for coming on, Graham. Thanks for having us. Let's talk murals. We've got a new one in Podsey. Um, we should say, just for the um, purposes of clarity, that we recorded this before the mural was unveiled, which should now be in the past, as you hear this on the on the Phil Hayes Show. So talk to us about the mural that's been unveiled, but that hasn't been unveiled yet. So time travelling and <laughs> art in the same conversation. <laughs> yeah, so the mural um, is one that is... Honouring the four legends that we lost over the course of the last sort of 15 months, so Jack, Norman, Trevor and Peter, being put together with the Legion United Supporters Trust, with Luskos, the Scandinavian group, uh, artist Nicholas Dixon, who did the Bielsa Redeemer in Wortley, 
So he's a real specialist of bright, vibrant colours, um, the biomorphic shapes. So it's it's a, it's a real, real sort of powerful work of art honouring the legends. A couple of local businesses as well that are, are, are involved in helping bring that to life. And we definitely recommend people getting across to Pudsey and having a look. What's a biomorphic shape? That's a word I've never heard before. So, uh, well, to be fair, until I saw it on Nick Dixon's uh, website, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily. It's it's kind of just sort of slightly different morph shapes, nothing too kind of square or linear. It's right. organic. Yeah. Of, okay. Kind of look, look forward to seeing it. And so you've partnered up with the, the Scandinavian group to do this. And we know how in touch the Scandinavians are with the legends and the relationship they always had with, with Peter and the commercial in Holbeck. So how did you get involved with them? So we, we, you know, we talk to pretty much all the other fan groups. As I said, we've always said that, you know, we want to bring people together, that together we're stronger as fans. And with that in mind, you know, we've been talking with the Luskos guys, keeping in touch with them, seeing how we can help them, you know, with some of their challenges around travel, things like Norwegian VAT systems, you know, that means when they're buying shirts out of the club, you know, they're getting double taxed. How can we help with that? So we're always helping with those conversations. And when it came to looking at doing a specific Legends mural, uh, we originally were already well in the process before, sadly, Peter passed away. And when Peter passed away, it triggered a conversation about how we might honour Peter as well. And as soon as we said, look, we're going to add him to this Legends mural, the Luskos guys said, look, we want to be part of that. We really want to help with that. So what the, what do murals bring to the city of Leeds? It seems like an obvious question, but what do you think they represent? I think there's multiple levels about anything like this where you bring art art to the masses. There's a sense of something that belongs to the community. It's not like a privately held picture that somebody looks at in a in a cellar like a stolen piece of art. It's something that belongs to the community. It brings colour, it brings vibrancy, it brings a sense of something being, you know, renovated and, and brought to life. You know, whether you look at something like the Bielsa Redeemer in Wortley next to the art you know, the the Asda. That was a fairly plain wall before, and now it's something that people go to. The Duck and Drake with the Pablo mural, something that kind of, you know, just regenerated a wall and made that people coming into the city on the train saw that connection with Leeds United. So from an emotional point of things of view, it's about connecting the city and the football club. From a commercial point of view, the one at Pudsey is at the marketplace. You know, so maybe they're gonna get much more in terms of people coming to the marketplace to just see the mural and as the stalls are on, pick up whatever kind of thing that, they're you know, whether it's a new phone case or whatever uh, is on the market that day. So, you know, there's a chance to bring that kind of sense of community back together. And that's, I think as well, when you take it out of the city centre and you place it into places like Pudsey for the for the for that mural or the Gary Speed in Bramley, it's giving a sense of kind of localised and centralised civic pride, I think. Do you think it is, it's reaching out well, the reach of the club into the city, then into the different parts, the different districts, is that an important factor of what you're doing? I, th- I think it's important, but I would say that uh, the football club has always had those tentacles out in the city. We're just, in effect, almost painting them brightly so that they're more visible. They've got more on the way? Uh, yes, there's more on the way. Um, one to look for coming soon in Meanwood, but I can't say a lot more than that. Go on, give us a little, just a little anything. Um, it's to do with a former club captain. That's all I'll say. Excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing that one, Graham. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. We spoke in part one there, Eddie, about remembering our history, and I'm I'm really pleased that the club and the fan base is doing plenty to commemorate our greats. We heard from Graham there from the Supports Trust just before, and you were at the unveiling ceremony in Pudsey Market Square, the mural that's been there of uh, of our four greats, including your, your great mate Peter Lorimer. You've obviously it's been a really tough 
18 months across this uh, this COVID lockdown uh, where the club's lost so many greats. You know, you've lost colleagues and teammates, but in Peter, you lost a really close friend. So tell us about your, your mate, Peter. Peter was a one-off, really. Peter was full of life, life and soul, Peter. Before a game, he used to drive Don crazy at times. Because he'd been watching a race, a horse race at quarter to three and walk back in the dressing room <laughs> and run out and stick one in the back of the net. And it was like that. In the dressing room, you know, people are usually doing a lot of warm-up, stretching and that. Peter never did anything like that. Peter's warm-up, he'd run out in the park and he'd get a ball and he'd knock it towards the goal and he'd whack it right at the one of the goalkeepers and he used to dislike, you know, dislike him. He used to hate it because it'd frighten him, you know. Now, Peter sadly missed. Uh, I mean, he was my roommate for lots of years as I said, I first watched him playing for the Scottish Schoolboys in 1962. I didn't know him. You know, I, I didn't know him. I was just playing with the Glasgow Schoolboys at the time. Obviously, I played with the Schoolboys, the Scottish Schoolboys, a year after Peter, because I was a year younger. And, you know, I was brought in Glasgow and uh, a bit arrogant in Glasgow because we used to think all oh, the best players came for Glasgow. The Edinburgh boys thought all oh, the best players came for Edinburgh. And usually the Scottish schoolboy team would be a mixture of boys for Edinburgh or Glasgow. And when I seen Peter play, I thought, I just couldn't believe how good he was. And I looked and I seen this little place, Brody Ferry, Dundee. And I thought, wow, this boy can really play, you know. And obviously when I joined the club, Peter was already at the club and we struck up a friendship, which lasted till Peter passed away, you know, which was sad. I mean, life was tough for Peter the last few years. You know, he hadn't been well, but... Still love going to Ellen Road, uh, watching the games. But you mentioned there, there's Norman, Big Jack, Trevor Cherry. I mean, the, the mural you're talking about, that's the uh, four players that are on there and all tremendous players. I mean, we actually look at the mural, two World Cup winners, Trevor Cherry, who was top player and the leading goal scorer of all time for the club. Sadly missed. Obviously, when you play with players for a long time, you, you form a bond with them, a friendship that lasts a lifetime. And that's, Obviously, what happened with Peter and I, but also the other players as well. Big Jack was a character. I mean, I remember coming down when I was 14 just to have a look at the place. Leeds, I mean, a scout called John Barr went to my dad one day. I was playing with the Glasgow schoolboys and asked me if we'd go into Leeds. And I'd be honest, we had never heard of them. Seriously, I'd never heard of them because I was growing up in Glasgow in the uh, 50s, early 60s, and the top size were. Obviously, Manchester United's Busby Babes, the great Wolverhampton Wanderers teams in the late 50s, Tottenham Hotspur side of the 60s in the double, and Celtic, they always great teams then. We were talking about level playing fields, and when, when it was a level playing field, Celtic were as good as any club in the country because they could hold on to their players in. It wasn't the same money. And I think they proved that against us in the semi-final European Cup. So I come down to Leeds when I was 14, and it was at Christmas 1962, it was a terrible winter, there was snow and ice everywhere. Fulton Park was covered in snow and ice and I was with the trainers, with the coaches in the little changing room. And the old building's still there at the end, if you look. And that's where the youth team used to train. You know, the trialists were in there and I was, thought I was going out for a trial and Don came in and told me I was training with the first team because he knew that at that particular time I had no intention of coming at least. I just... Thought I'll go down and see what I like as and I liked the, the scout John Barr. That was the only reason I says, yeah, I'll go down because John was a nice man. And Don took me to train with the first team and first record election is getting the ball, getting up to Big Jack, dribbling by Big Jack, <laughs> and I'm booting me up in the air, <laughs> lying in the snow. 
and looking down and saying, don't do that to me again, you little bee. You know, <laughs> that was Jack. You know, Jack was a character, great character, but there was a period of time, I think, for about four or five seasons, uh, Jack was the best centre-half in the world. He was tremendous. I mean, obviously, a World Cup winner for England, you know, and him and Norman had a great partnership at the back. So you look back and playing with players like that, and it's something that, you know, brings a smile to your face. I mean, you know, the old halfback line, as it was then, number four, five, four, five six. Four, five, six, yeah. Brenner, Charlton, Hunter. Not bad. <laughs> I'll never be a better one. Billy, obviously, died a lot younger than a lot of the other players, which was very sad. Billy was a one-off as well. Billy wasn't a great trainer, you know. Billy didn't really like training, you know, but when the ball came out, it was like turning a light switch on. It was just electric. And nobody, nobody at the club, even Peter, nobody had a better record than Billy, scoring big goals in big games, cup finals, semi-finals, the cups. Billy would always pop up with a goal. And, and his partnership with, with Johnny Giles was just tremendous. Two completely different characters, though. Completely different. Johnny always thought about the game, trained hard. Johnny would probably, if we were playing the game and maybe we went a goal down, it was nothing each. Billy would forget his midfield duties. I'm off. I'm going to <laughs> score a goal. I'm going to get the equaliser. I'm going to get a winner. Nine times out of ten, Billy would do it. But Johnny would be the man that would always be pulling the strings. They were perfect foil for each other. I mean, you think the two of them played midfield together and the two of them scored 115 goals each for the club. It's a lot of goals from two midfield players. So it was a pleasure to have, to have played with the players you've mentioned. But obviously, as I said earlier, I was closer to Peter because we grew up together. We were on the ground staff together. Peter was funny. Peter drove for three or four years. I can say this now because he's not here. <laughs> Peter drove for three or four years without a licence. I mean, hadn't he passed his test? <laughs> it was a little bit more relaxed, wasn't it, back then, the whole testing system? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you still had to pass your test to get in of a car. You know, I remember we went to Scotland to watch Scotland play. Peter and me and Jimmy Lumsden met. Jimmy was on the ground staff with then. And they bought a new Ford Corsair. And the Ford Corsair was quite a fast car at that time. It was a, an upgrade Ford, you know. And we're coming back. We had to be back the next day. Don didn't know where we were going because we, had to, we were in train the next day. We were in at nine o'clock the next day. And we're coming back for Scotland. And all of a sudden, Peter's car just conked out. Coming back down near Carlisle. And uh, a police car came. And uh, asked Peter what had happened, you know. And right, me and your mate, the two cops go to the car there's a hill down the corner in the corner about 50 yards away we'll push you to the hill get down the hill and we'll kick start it you know so me and Jimmy and the two cops are pushing the car down the hill it's down the bottom of the hill nothing the cops get away they say right we'll have to send a truck out you know a, a lorry to load the car away no sooner the cops go on Peter says jump in the car he says, he says how was Ryan he says I forgot to turn the ignition on <laughs> <laughs> and we were off and away never heard anything else <laughs> Peter was ice cold you know and everything he did you know that's why he was such a great goal scorer you know if Peter got through and goal you know 1v1 he could walk back to the halfway line think yeah no where this is going to end up yeah, he was a great character Peter and sadly he missed by all his, his friends and you know obviously when he ran in the commercial and the ladies he used to a number of Scandinavians supporters that went in before games I mean They'd all be in there singing the songs and Peter used to have to throw them out late at night. You know? <laughs> he was president of the Scandinavian Supporters Club and uh, well-loved character in the city of Leeds, Peter. And he spent all his life for by 
period of time when he went to Toronto, you know, and in Vancouver with Johnny. With Johnny Giles, he went to Vancouver, but lived all his life in Leeds, in the Leeds area. Not a bad golfer, I hear. You and uh, you and Peter used to do a few rounds well, together. Were, were you competitive when you were playing golf? We were all the time. I've, I've not really played golf since Peter stopped playing, you know, because I used to play with him two or three times a week. Yeah, it was competitive, yeah. We used to like to beat each other. Who know? was better? I would think me, he would say him. <laughs> That's <laughs> a great answer. <laughs> And uh, what would you talk about then when you when you're playing golf? You've seen so much together. You reminisce about uh, just old times everything about the current club and everything you know about golf, football. Peter liked his horse racing. I think everybody knows that. Peter liked a bit, but you can never tell if he'd won or lost. If he lost, he would break even. That was he'd tell you. <laughs> but if he won, he would tell you how much he won. <laughs> <laughs> you spoke there about Peter's ties to the city, and there's a great parallel between both of you actually, as Scotsman who came down. Um, when you were young, yeah. played in the in the Reavy side and stayed around in the city and were yeah. tied to the club yeah. for for many years after. It's interesting watching you talk because you kind of you light up when you're talking about like spotting players. Yeah, and I think it's something that that we. I mean, we've got a running joke on our podcast, haven't we? About put Eddie in and, and play the kids. Yeah. yeah, when things go wrong at Leeds, put Eddie in and play the kids. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's become kind of a, a running joke. Even when we lose, you know, one game, yeah. like, put Eddie in and play the kid. Do you think you've got a real flair for spotting young players? Because we know the story of you, you spotting Stephen McPhailan loving his left foot. I've also um, heard tales of you spotting John Sheridan knocking round at Ellen Road as well. Well, you know, the, player, the young players you, you work with, you know, you, some have got like, a real gift how to play the game and a knowledge of how to play the game. There wasn't any players at the club had more ability than Stephen to play midfield. And Stephen had the great knowledge of how to get into the game and play the game. The only problem Stephen had compared to a lot of other players, he just lacked that yard of pace. If he'd have had that extra yard of pace, he'd have been one of the best players in Britain. No doubt about that. I mean, if you ask Harry Kuehl, the best player he played with, he'll say Stephen McPhail. And Harry was some player. John Sheridan was another top player. I mean, I remember youth team coach at the time, Keith Mincher, coming to me when I was manager in the early 80s and saying, there's a young boy in here, John Sheridan, can't get him today much. He's... So I went in and I took John training with the first team. I got him out the same little changing room that I was in, you know, like, and I took him training with the first team. And just for one day, you know, I says, oh, I'll take him with me the day. So I took him and they never went back to the youth team. They stayed training with me all the time now because he had the ability. I think the thing with John is like, and, you know, obviously John's well-respected by the United fans because he was, he was a top player and he went on to have a great career. But you can sense right away when somebody's got the talent to play. Same when you're looking at Jonathan Woodgate. I mean, I took Jonathan Woodgate to a tournament called the Dallas Cup in Texas. It doesn't sound like much, but the best sides in the world. Real Madrid and Barcelona, Inter, AC, two great American sides, South American, Brazilian sides. And the two Brazilian sides played in the final. But it was an under-20 tournament. Jonathan was only 15 at the time. I got back right away and I says, well, this boy's going to be some player, centre-half. And it was. I mean, him and Rio played together for a short period of time. Uh, Rio Ferdinand and a bit of toss of the coin. Who was a better player? When you actually look at Jonathan Woodgate's career, Jonathan played for England when he was 19. Now, he played for England and you're 19 as a centre-back. That tells you how much talent you've got. And Real Madrid don't sign bad players. You know, he went to Real Madrid as well, you know. And unfortunately for Jonathan, he just had an injury that held him back. What is that thing? Eddie, then, that you spot, you see a young player, whether it's kicking round on the training ground or maybe you see him in a match. What's that thing that you 
as Eddie Gray recognising a footballer and you know he's going to make it. Because that's one thing as fans, that's why we're fans and we're not coaches. We don't understand necessarily what that is. I think there's a lot of players and this still is in the country. They've got a lot of talent. Talent in their feet can do things. The hardest thing to put into a player is the knowledge of how to play the game. And by that, I mean, like, you hardly ever seen Jonathan Wood get gone to ground, sliding into people. It wasn't necessary. Still on his feet. He'd read the situation. It's a bit like Stephen McPhail, who wasn't quick, but Stephen could sense players round about him. A bit like John Sheridan. John Sheridan wasn't quick. They hardly ever get caught in possession of the ball, John, because you could see players coming and you went to knock it off and you went to turn on the ball quickly and you went to knock it forward, went to keep possession. It's a bit like probably the best I've seen at it. You know, for the knowledge of how to play the game was probably Giles. Johnny had a great knowledge of how to play the game. And Johnny can spot players right now. I still speak to John. He still spots players that know how to play the game. And, and that is a hard thing to put into people. You know, I, I, you know, you play with players and they'll do some tremendous things on the ball. And then they'll do some stupid things, you know, like, and you think, what are you doing that for? Having played with all those, those great players and seen them and coached them, how frustrating have you found it during the, the bad years at Leeds recently? And I know there's been there's always been a glimpse, there's always been a Dell for a Snodgrass in there, but as a whole, you must have at times despaired at what you've been watching in terms of the intelligence well, of the players. I mean, I think you, you, you look at football teams in general, you're never going to get one player that can make the whole side click. He'll know, do it all on his own. There's maybe a, a couple of players that I can think of that most people need other players. I mean, I've always said the best British player I've ever seen is Bobby Charlton. Bobby didn't need him. To. Johnny used to say that. I mean, Johnny played with him at Manchester United. He says, Bobby didn't need him to play. Bobby could do it on his own. You know, pick the ball up. Johnny says, I'd be playing outside, right? Bobby, no, knock it to him, knock it to him. Oh, goal. <laughs> you know, that was it. You get certain players that, it's like Lionel Messi, who's the best player I've ever seen, because I think he can do everything. He can link up play can pass the ball, he brings players into the game, he creates chances and he scores an awful lot of goals. You just get certain players that they've got that talent. I mean, everybody that comes to a football club, everybody, and I'm talking about everybody, all the boys that walk through the door, they've all got a talent or they wouldn't be there. But when you get to know them and you get to look at them, you think, yep, he's got talent, but can he play the game? Having the knowledge, if you're playing right back, you're playing centre back, you're having the knowledge of how you should play and how you should play. You have the knowledge of how your teammates should play. And I think that's what he puts into the players at least. I've looked at them and I think they've all got a knowledge of how a right back should be playing, how a left back should be playing. There's no better example, I think, at the club at the present time than Stuart Dallas. Stuart could play left side midfield, right side midfield, right wing, left wing, right back, left back. He could fit in at centre back and play with somebody. He's a knowledge of how the game should be played. And that's, that's a good thing, you know. But it's also the hardest thing to put into players. I mean, even when I was younger, I played with a lot of players that you'd be up in the training ground watching them and you'd play, playing small-sided games. And they had great ability and great talent. But then, when you put them in the big picture, they couldn't really get into the game. Or they never knowledge of how other players should be playing the game. I mean, I was pretty fortunate when I grew up with... I mean, my dad never played as a professional, but my dad was a good player. My dad got wounded during the war. But my dad had the good knowledge of how to play the game. I could tell that. And the good knowledge of how the game should be. I used to go and watch Celtic with him. And he would talk about the games. And he would say, he's good, but he doesn't know how to get into the game. He doesn't know how to play the game. Uh, so I learned that from my dad. And 
you know, I'm seven years older than my brother, Frank. But when Frank was eight or nine and I watched him play, I knew Frank was going to be a player because he knew how to play the game. <laughs> Not only just the talent, but he knew how the game should be played. That's a hard thing to put into people. And a lot of people don't understand what you mean about that. But when you actually watch games, you, you watch certain players, that's the hardest thing to put into them. Is that awareness then? You mean like it's awa- awareness yeah. around, you know, if you're playing midfield, so awareness of people round about you, when to hold the ball, when to turn on the ball, when to knock it off first time. If your team are in trouble, you lose the ball, where, where to fill in to help your, your, maybe your defenders or help your midfield players. See, people always talk about different systems. Systems, to me, don't really mean anything. We always played with a back four, two central midfield players, two wide players and two front men. Right. But if we were attacking down the right side and maybe Billy was away beyond the ball, I'd get in at the back post or, you know, whatever. But if I wasn't involved in the game, I would fill in in midfield. I would sit in there in midfield. So at times your two central midfield players become four because you're all working together and you know when to do it. And it's the same when you're playing as a defender. I mean, at times when I played with Terry, Terry Cooper, who was a great world-class left back, Terry liked to get forward. If he was going forward and I thought it was a danger here, I would drop in and sit deeper for the left wing spot to drop in and play as a left back, you know, to tear it back into position. So it's just having that knowledge and thinking about the game. And I think Marcella brings that to the players that lead us now. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. The top 10 signings since 2006. We're doing that with Phil. Covering off his absence, keeping his voice on the podcast. And um, we are now into the top half of this top 10. So far... We've had Paddy Kisnobo taking number 10, Robert Snodgrass at number 9, Luciano Becchio at 8, Liam Cooper at 7, Rafinha took number 6 last week. Number 5 then, who have we got? The RAC man, Jermaine Beckford. Lovely guy, quality, quality finisher. Really quality finisher. You sometimes have to look back at his stats to remember just how prolific he was and and how long he kept it going for. As, As soon as he got the shot in the arm of Dennis Wise saying to him, you're going to be my first choice, you're going to play all season. It started to come really naturally and and the more the goals flowed, the more confident he seemed to get. I never felt he had the best of first touches and he would probably say that himself and if there's if there's no better example Old than the goal at Old Trafford, <laughs> which he, he always jokes was entirely what was intended, but that first touch required the most exquisite finish and the most delicate finish but that was him. One of the other goals that jumps out to me is the lob against Hartlepool on the day when Leeds went back to zero points, the, the fifth win on the bounce and cancelled out that, that minus 15 penalty. Um, scored from a ridiculous angle and a ridiculous range to be finished like that. But that was 100% what he could do. And, and again, 
you know, he he did have a, a kind of academy background and, and he had a lot of interest in him when we signed him. He was at Wheelston in non-league, but he was basically about to sign for, for Watford and, and to sign for A.D. Boothroy when he got a call from his agent saying, look, don't do this because Leeds have offered you a deal. They've offered you a contract. Get yourself up here and see what you think. So he pretty much had to go into reverse gear down at Watford and, and say to Boothroy, look, I was about to sign, but I'm no longer going to do it because I would much rather go to Leeds than to come here. And I mean, the, the ease with which he just banged in 30 goals, 34 goals, 30 goals, it takes some doing and it takes some doing even at that level. I know it was League One as opposed to the Premier League where we are now and, and the Championship where you had somebody like Chris Wood scoring 30 times and, and McCormack scoring scoring 29. But he was so dependable, Beckford. And I think you can deduce how vital he was to the team by the fact that in the period where it kind of dried up for him and in the period where his form wasn't great and there was all the talk about his contract and his future during the run-in 2009-2010, the form, the club's form and results got very, very dicey and promotion was was on the line. And ultimately, whose goal got them over the line? It's Beckford's. I think that sealed his legacy in many ways because it was quite tempestuous up to that point because of the contract and being transfer listed and then eventually dropped in that in that run. And it actually, I think now looking back on it, Leeds fans are kinder to Beckford, probably because he's so positive about us since he's finished playing and his love for Leeds is absolutely, it's completely evident. I think his place in, in the history of the club as well is that for a, a generation of fans, his two moments against Man United and against Bristol were the best moments that they'd had as as fans. Admittedly, coming at the, the lowest point for the club, but they were actual things that we could look at those days and go, something happened that day and no one took it away from us. Whereas that's not really been the case for any, for any other moment, has there? There's been goals that have seen us get to playoff finals and take the lead in playoff semi-finals that have been great, but they didn't actually lead to anything, did they? So it was, um, I think that's why he's he's so well-remembered as well, despite the fact that he ultimately did leave when, ideally, I think we, us in the championship with Beckford would have been quite an exciting proposition. He always regretted requesting a transfer. He put in a, a transfer request at a time when Newcastle were, were very interested. That was midway through the, the 09-10 season. And he felt like it was the right thing to do at the time. But when I interviewed him a while back, he, he said very quickly he realised that it drew too much focus on him, too much attention on him. It was just all anybody was talking about and it stopped him from enjoying the job, enjoying the game. There was too much chatter around it and he and he couldn't get away from it. So eventually he withdrew the, the transfer request and everybody said, look, we'll, we'll deal with this at, at the end of the season. He's another player and you have to say that the more players who say this, the more evidence builds up in, in favour of, of believing this. He's another player who feels that he, he simply wasn't being offered what he should have been offered by the club. They they weren't committing to rewarding him in the way that they should have been for somebody who was consistently scoring 30 goals a season. And I suspect as well, his departure on a free was probably slightly easier to accept on the basis that he was going to Everton and he was going to the, the Premier League. It wasn't as if he was going somewhere else in the Championship and it wasn't as if he was taking what looked like a fairly mundane or sideways move for the money, he was going to a very good Everton team. And you felt that he'd earned it and, and it was right for him to do that. Jermaine Beckford takes number five then in the top 10 signings since 2006. A reminder that so far we've got Paddy Kisnarbo at 10, Robert Snodgrass at nine, Luciano Becchio at eight, Liam Cooper at seven, Rafinha took number six, Beckford at five. Next week, we'll bring you Phil's number four. Well, we're speaking to you, Eddie, while the Euros are on. England playing Scotland. 
at uh, Wembley, isn't it, on, on Friday, and echoes of your own debut there, your international debut, 1969, uh, and you faced England. Didn't necessarily go as well as you might want it to. No happy memory. No, <laughs> you never like getting beat with England. But it's something you look back on and you, you're disappointed, obviously, as result, but you're happy to play for your country at Wembley, especially against England. But I also had the pleasure of playing a team at Hamden Park at Beatle. So I thought I'd just mention that. Yeah. You know. <laughs> That was that 76, yeah, 76, yeah, yeah, that yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a great experience to play for your country. I mean, obviously, I never get as many caps as I should have done. But, and that was only because, I mean, I got a bad thigh injury when I was younger, playing for the reserves against Sheffield Wednesday. And if I wouldn't have been for that, I think I'd have played more games for Leeds United than any player. I mean, because I never played for a long period of time. And obviously, football's changed a lot, you know, when it's a European Championships or World Cup qualifiers, everything closes down for two weeks. You don't play club football. But then you'd play for your club on the Saturday, leave Sunday and go and play on a Wednesday night. And I couldn't I couldn't do that with my thigh injury. You know, I was I was struggling to keep my career going, which was important to me. So the twelve caps I only got for my country could have been a lot more. But just because of my thigh injury, I I, I just had to curtail my career. I mean, when I was 24, 25, I was told I'd have to pack the game in. And it was only Jimmy Arnfield who got me back playing. Because when Jimmy came to the club, I was waiting to hear, the club were waiting to hear for the Football League insurers about me finishing and compensation for the club. And Jimmy asked me to take the youth team, coach the youth team from, for a period of time. So I did that. And after a period of time, I started to join in. And I learned how to play with my thigh. Uh, you know, I learned what I could do and what I couldn't do. And Jimmy asked me to says to me, yeah, you're looking good today. I was still only young, I could play. You're looking good, but do you fancy having to go for the reserves? And I played for the reserves again, and I played in the FA Cup in the Saturday, and I played on then after that, but I learned how to play with it, you know, my thigh. What, what was the issue with it then? Could you just not maybe uh, turn, or you couldn't sprint, or what was the... The issue was that I tore a muscle. I was playing against Sheffield Wednesday reserves, I was just turned 16, I think, and I went to take a corner kick, and I felt something pop in my thigh. And I, I look back on it, and I'm, I'm not criticising anybody at the football club because it's how it was then. Treatment w- w- wasn't the right then. You've not got scans and things like that that you've got now well, you just, to the same uh, level. The treatment of the injury just wasn't right. I know that. If people could look back, they would say, what did we do that for? Because I'd tore a muscle uh, in my thigh, and the things they were doing was just making it bleed. So it was calcifying. The bone was growing in the muscle. So they had to... Cut that out, and I had five operations on my thigh. I still got a hole in my the top of my thigh where my muscle shortened. That was a danger. That was the thing, and I was left footed, and it was my left thigh. So my muscle was obviously wasn't as long because they had to cut the calcification out. So if I overstretched, pull, but it's only when you look back you think uh, if it had been if the treatment would have been more advanced, what I was doing was completely wrong. I know that now. I didn't know that at the time. And the, and the people who worked for the club didn't know that at the time. So I'm not, not being disrespectful to them in any way. They thought that's how things should be done. But you went on, you went on to win caps. I went at, on to win caps after and that. I went on to play. And, but I learned how to play with my thigh, though. I never played as freely as I've wanted to until I was 24. Do you, do you feel like that's, a, that's one of your regrets, that you, you didn't necessarily hit the ceiling you feel you could have got to? I would have been a better player. Far better. You weren't bad anyway. <laughs> oh, I, could, I could play, but that was only because... And the funny thing is, people talk about that, about 
I don't, to any credit whatsoever, they've been able to play the game. I don't. It was just something I could do at a very young age. You know, playing with the school when I was young, playing under 12s when I'm seven and eight. I play with the Glasgow schoolboys, play with the Scottish schoolboys. It's just something I could do. You know, I mean, I played for the under 23s, Scotland, and it was under 23s then when I was 18. And I'd have played for Scotland when I was 18 because he'd called me up. But Mackay wouldn't allow it then. You know, it was um, the only thing I take credit for um, in my career is my work ethic and working hard and training hard. I always done that. You know, because I said to you earlier, a great belief if you can't run, you can't play. And the further and the quicker you can run, the better you can play. I just couldn't run as fast as I wanted to. I was quick, but I would have been quicker if it wouldn't have been for my thigh. Yeah. And I'd have done a lot more things in the game if it wouldn't have been for my thigh. So that it is a regret. It is, like, for the point of view, I, I wish I could have played for a bit. And, and see, all players get injuries. I mean, I broke my ankle, but I didn't bother me. But it was a thigh injury that really knocked me back because every day you're going out thinking, Am I going to overstretch this again here? Is it going to just pop again, you know? And we're being left-footed. Just little things, you know, like I couldn't strike the ball as well as, well as I wanted to with the same power because I was worried about my muscle just popping again, you know? Does so, it always plays on your mind then whenever you're doing any sort of kicking action or running action? Well, like uh, that? my thigh went so many times, you, you begin to think, is it going to go again? And it was only actually, and you know, what it says to you earlier about uh, Jimmy Arnfield, sending me to coach the kids and, and my, my feet getting itchy and thinking, oh, I'm going to join in a couple of sessions and then joining in, but learning what I could do and what I couldn't do. And that's why I played on it. I played on it when I was 36, in my last game when I was 36. But that's football. Just going back to the um, the game that you mentioned in, in 1976, Don Revy was managing England at the time, I believe, was he? Is that, is that right? Uh, I'm not sure. Then they bothered me who we played. Like, you know, if it was England, you're only thinking one time. Trying to beat them. You what's, know? The, what's that fixture like? What does it feel like both at Wembley and then when you're at Hamden? Well, I mean, obviously, I did. When I was younger, I'd, I'd go and watch the games. I remember watching Bobby Charlton playing against Scotland at 1958. Bobby was only young then. What a goal he scored at Hamden. England beat Scotland 4 nothing that day. So you go home crying then. It's always a huge fixture. Used to love watching Dennis Law playing for Scotland. He was, Dennis was a big hero. I mean, you brought up. And it's only when you get a little bit older, you, you realise sometimes it's a bit stupid, you know, like to dislike Englishmen, you know, it, it's a load of rubbish <laughs> really, you know. That's, and that Scotland-England game was always a massive fixture, you know, and, and to have the pleasure to play in one at Wembley and one at Hamden, it's something that, that stays with you forever, you know. I mean, in those days it was, um, it was 100,000 and 136,000 at Hamden Park, you know, and you're walking out at Wembley, but, in those days, when you walked out at Wembley, you felt you were playing in Scotland because there was that many Scotsmen there. You, you, you wondered where they got the tickets, you know. Swinging from the crossbar. Uh, yeah, I know. It was, just, <laughs> it was just a great occasion, you know, for uh, to play in a fixture like that. What was it like around the training ground at Leeds? Because obviously there were normally players in, in both squads at that time. Was it, was it something that you'd have a bit of a build-up to? <laughs> well, we used to play Scotland-England games, you know, in training. And Don had to pack them in. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Dad. No, I had to pack them in. Hey, Dad. They got a bit heated. It's going to be like the golf here. I'm going to say who, who won. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, in the early days, we would win because <laughs> Bobby was still around, Bobby Collin. <laughs> you know, talk about the great players that have played for Leeds United. And, you know, I mentioned a few there. You know, 
you've Strachan, you've David Barty and McCallis, they're speed great players and players that I played with. But all the players, uh, in my opinion, and this is only my opinion, I think a lot of my ex-teammates would agree with me. A few of them are not around, but I know what they thought. All the players that have ever played for the club, I don't think there's been a more important player than Bobby Collins. As Bobby taught them all how to win. Sometimes it would get a bit over the top, <laughs> as we say. And Bobby was a, a winner, as well as being a great player. I mean, I watched Bobby when he played for Celtic when I was younger with my dad. He was a great Celtic player. And Bobby went to Everton, and Bobby was a great Everton player. When Don became manager, he bought Bobby. The best buy the club's ever, ever made. I think there was a few raised eyebrows because Bobby was supposedly coming to the end of his career. But when I came to the club, when Bobby was 35, 36, 1965, football of the year, and he was 35. Does that just come from his, his determination to win and some, almost coming to the club with something to prove, do you think? No, that's just how he was. <laughs> he, he didn't, Bobby didn't think he had anything to prove to anybody. He says that to Bobby, you'd be lying flat in your back. <laughs> no, you would. Bobby was five feet three, got a size four in a boot, and Bobby would have fought anybody. And I know who would have backed, you know. Bobby was a born winner. I remember when I was 15, we used to go up to Roundy Park and go round and round. We did a cross country round, Roundy Park. I mean, Don had always put us in teams for pre season training. So there was Charlton, Bremner, I think Giles when he first came to the club, and Bobby with four captains. And I was in Bobby's team. And we used to do everything through pre season for points. And the winning team would get a prize at the end of it for Don and you know, and the winning captain would be delighted. Uh, and the first year I came down, I was in Bobby's team. And the most points you could get for anything was 20 points to the winner of the cross country around the park. <laughs> and Bobby realised I could run, even though I was only young. And I, and I was in Bobby's team. They come up to me and they says, I want 20 points off you today. <laughs> so I looked at Bobby and I thought, Bobby, if you want 20 points, you're getting them. So I'm running around round the park and I come up the steps at Hill 60 ready to run down Soldier's Field. We used to start at the bottom, run right round the lake, then back up and down to the bottom at the clock at Auckland, you know, yeah, down the bottom yeah. of Soldier's Field. So I'm running down there and I ran away for everybody for buying old Scottish pro, Jim Story. And Jim was a great goal scorer for Leeds in the old second division. Big help to get Leeds into the, the big league, you know. And Jim wasn't in my team. Jim was in another team. So he was an experienced pro and I could hear him, he was puffing away and I thought, this is easy. I could see Don away in the distance at the winning post. And I was just ready to go and Jim says to me, Eddie, we've left them all behind. We run in together, we get 20 points each. So I thought, oh, well, that's fair enough, Jim. Sure enough, you know what's going to happen. Five yards for the line, story sprints away from me. <laughs> so Don's killing himself laughing. He could see what was happening. And Bobby comes in, trailing, you know, in the midfield. And Bobby comes in. He sees Don laughing, sees story laughing. Ask me what happened. I told him and he chinned me. He <laughs> <laughs> did. That was Bobby. Couldn't get away with it now. Yeah. But that's that's how Bobby was. Bobby was a winner. And he taught all the players how they could win. I remember saying to Johnny, Johnny Giles, what did you come to Leeds for? You just won the FA Cup in Man United in 1963 and you came to Leeds. He says, I came to Leeds because I knew Bobby Collins was there. I think that says everything. So you'd grown up watching him play then, and yeah. how how was it to actually? I played well to meet him and play with him and and all that sort of stuff. Was it was that a bit of a dream come true? I guess dream come true, a bit frightening because if you didn't do things right in the right manner, see, Bobby was one of these like he was always immaculate, immaculate. 
his shoes were well, you know, you when they say you could comb your hair in shoes, you could in Bobby's. It was always immaculate. No hair out of place, nothing. Everything he did, trained hard, played the game right, believed that everybody else should do it. Anybody stepping out of line, Bobby would be on him. Because in the early days, you know, you know, you used to be around, you know, even when you weren't, you know, as a young player and you maybe beginning picking boots up in the dressing room, Bobby would be, he'd be going on to everybody, Billy. Johnny, Big Jack, and be shouting at everybody. And Don would just go, go on, Bobby. Yeah, you get you get into them, you know. Don was clever like that, you know. And because he knew that his winning mentality. See, when Bobby grew up, he played with great Celtic players and he got into a habit of winning. So Bobby was a born winner. And if he didn't, you know, like he would have been shoved aside at Celtic Park. So Bobby grew up to be a winner. And and that, that transmitted its itself. Is this why I say? There's never a more important player walk through the gates for the start of what Leeds United became. I mean, obviously, Big John, I've never seen Big John playing at his best, John Charles, but John must have been a great player. But the team never done anything as such. You know, they get promotion a couple of times, but never had won a major honour. But as soon as Bobby came to the club, when you actually think about it, they get promotion for, you know, the old second division in the first. The next season, second in the league, FA Cup final, and Bobby's playing. You know, it's he built that desire and how to win and the will to win and how to go about it. And what you've got to remember, the game was more brutal then. I'm talking about challenges, you know. And uh, Bobby could look after himself. He was some man. The funny thing is, in later life, I say to him, Bobby, what what made you how you were in a football back? Because Bobby was win at all costs. So he says to me, well, playing for Everton against the Arsenal at Highbury. So I'm running out to the right wing to try and retrieve a ball at Highbury. The next thing, he says, I'm lying in row three and I turn around and my best mate, who he grew up with at Celtic Park, was standing there looking down at him and Bobby says to him, what was that all about? And the player just looked at him and says, Bobby, you have no friends in this game. Do you know who it was? Tommy Doc. <laughs> that was his mate. That's what he says to him. For that day, Bobby thought, this isn't going to happen to me again. <laughs> I was going to say before, it's it's really interesting how there are parallels between what Bobby Collins had been written off and Gordon Strachan coming into Leeds as well. It's just, it's fascinating how that, there's a real Scottish DNA in Leeds United, isn't it? When you look oh, at there always is. I mean, obviously Billy was a tremendous player and Bobby. And enough, I was looking at an old 1958 Scottish team the other day. It was in the paper, it was in the, you know, one of the daily papers and it was just talking about, and I just looked at the team you know, and I looked at the players. And the front, the three players sitting right in the middle of the front were Dave Mackay, Bobby and Dennis Law. Some players, you know. like, And we we had obviously that tradition of Scottish players coming down. It was not a day we, probably Don and, you know, and see, Don's wife was Scottish. Elsie was Scottish and Don loved Scotland. So the first thing he did, I think, when he came to the club was try and recruit players that he thought could come down and give something a little bit different and obviously Bobby was one of the first and Jim Story came and then you had Billy coming. Billy was here before Don came but Billy always wanted to get back to Scotland. Billy was homesick. It was Don that persuaded him to stay and Billy played all his first games at Legion as an outside right. Don transformed him into this midfield player. It's a bit like me being a midfield player and playing outside left. Peter being a striker playing outside right. Norman Hunter was a, I don't know if people know, Norman was a failed midfield player when Don came. The club were going to get rid of him. And Don turned him into the centre-back he became, one of the best in the world. 
Terry Cooper was an outside left, made him a left back. You know, Don did a lot of things that helped the players, but they also was a great help to the club, you know. I think he's got to take all the credit for starting on the club, on the path that they eventually took, you know, and became successful and, and still a big name in world football now. And that's why I think everybody was delighted to see us play in the Premier League under Marcelo last season, the brand of football we were playing, you know. And let's, let's like going back to, you mentioned there, Hivers' team, you know, Gordon. Gordon's coming, for, you know. We actually think, you know, Gordon played with Man United and it comes to Leeds. Johnny Giles played with Man United, it comes to Leeds. And then there's this dislike between the fans. And, you know, sometimes I, I wonder I wonder what that's, that's all about, you know. It's only there with the Cantona thing, going the other way and becoming the huge Man United player. When we played, you know, they were never the team that we had the biggest rivalry with, you know, when, when the team I played in. It would be a Liverpool team or the Chelsea team for London who were physically strong. And It's interesting, there's probably a geographical thing there as well as having spent a bit of time around each other in the Premier League. And I don't know, it's interesting to try and sort of drill into it, isn't it? And, and work out where it came from. But uh, that's, pro- that's probably a conversation for an entirely... Uh, oh, it'd be a different Entirely thing, different day. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, we could stay here and chat for hours, Eddie. It's been an absolute pleasure and an education for us uh, for us both. So let's let's go back to the, the topic of this part and ask you uh, what you think is going to happen at Wembley between England and Scotland then as a proud Scotsman. I think the occasion seemed to get to the Scottish players against Czechoslovakia. I think there was so much importance and emphasis on getting the points on the board. I think a lot of the players never performed as well as they could do. I think one of the disappointing aspects of our team, which is the strongest part of our team in the game against Czechoslovakia, was the midfield area. We never really got to grips with the midfield area. I think it'll be a lot different at Wembley. I do. Because I think the three midfield players that they've got in there, I don't know if they'll play Armstrong, but McTominay and McGinn are strong midfield players and it'll be an interesting battle, I think. You know, I don't know who England will play. If they'll play Calvin, I think he'll play Calvin. I can't see him leaving them out. Uh, I think they'll go with the same two central midfield players. And I think it'll be whoever gets a grip of that midfield area could win the game. I think that the other big factor is obviously England have got a top class goal scorer and they look as if they're capable of scoring goals for a few areas, you know, midfield areas going forward with the likes of Foden and Mason Mount if Greeley's plays. And that's where we maybe just be lacking a little bit. Not being disrespectful with the strikers, but, you know, you look at the players that England have got, especially the centre-forward, Harry Kane, he's a goal-scorer. You know, he can score goals, he sniffs things out, and that could be a factor. I'm expecting a better display for the Scottish team, and I think that was purely down to the nervous tension against the Czech Republic. I'm still getting into the game a little bit fearful, though, because you know, it's an important game for us. I mean, we waited a long time to qualify for a major championship, and it'd be disappointing not to... Uh, get into the knockout stages and that's where you've got to give Wales a lot of credit I mean they look as if they're nailed on for the knockout stages now so all credit to them but it'd be nice if we could get, get into the knockout stages I think we see a transformation in the side end but I think there's just this pressure on them to get out of the, the group stage Mind you Harry Kane's playing like a frustrated midfielder as well at the minute <laughs> Well I think I think it's a little bit different I think it should be different from you know watching a game the other day I don't think he has to drop deep with the players he's got round about him. They get, they get players in there can create. He might feel, think this is dead at Tottenham, but there's better midfield players playing for England than Harry Kane. I think his job for England, the way they play and the players have got, and what he's really, really good at, 
sticking a ball in the back of the net. And even the other night, you could sense he was getting frustrated and dropping that a little bit, bit deeper. I know they win the game, but it was a hard battle for them. I think you'll see a different Harry Kane against Scotland. I think he'll play further up the pitch. If, if you were coaching Harry Kane, would you tell him to get up there? Well, you know, like, you don't want players like Fodden or Mason Mount or whoever going down the flanks and knocking balls in the box and Harry Kane's outside the 18-yard box. You want him in the box because that's his great strength. He's good in the air. He's good getting across people. He's a great finisher. He's got an eye for a goal. But maybe he's felt himself when he played at club level, I'm not getting enough chances here. But he still scored plenty of goals, you know. Like So I think Gareth Southgate will be trying to emphasise the point to him. We need you in the box. And I think if he plays, I think I think he'll play. But if he plays, you'll need him in the box. You'll want him in the box a lot more uh, than dropping deep. Because he has a centre forward. I mean, I know the game's changed in the top of it. False number nines <laughs> and all that. I mean, to me, it's just, it's just about playing the game. And playing the game in the right manner. Well, we won't wish you luck for, for Friday as two Englishmen. But... And I won't you either. <laughs> <laughs> but we will say, honestly, uh, just to reiterate what we said before already, it's, in, it's been an absolute pleasure. I could sit and listen to you talk for hours mm. because you've forgot, I think you've forgotten more about football in this sit-down than I've probably learned in my entire life. So thank you so much for coming to join us on the show. It's pleasure. been a real pleasure. Thank pleasure. you. Thank you. Uh, catch up with The Athletic if you haven't subscribed yet at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And in the meantime, we'll speak to you next week. Thanks. The Phil Hay Show. 